0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And you should strap on your seatbelt and get ready for some career coaching with our guest, Mazarine trays. But before we speak with her, I want to share a bit about an upcoming strategic planning opportunity. As a listener, you know one of my areas of expertise is strategic planning And let me tell you I have seen firsthand the necessity of strategic planning time and time again when I step into organizations that don't currently have a strategic plan. And without a doubt, a thorough, Robust and fearless, that's right, I said fearless, strategic planning process is of incredible value to any organization. The resulting plan defines the direction and responses of the organization, provides a roadmap to better outcomes, and yes, believe it or not, even makes the journey there a lot more gratifying. Now, I'm also a realist. I know that not every nonprofit can afford a consultant to guide them in this process. That knowledge is what spurred me to develop the Strategic Planning Facilitator Cohort Group. It's a 28 week online program, that's right, delivered via the web, in which qualified board members from 12 different nonprofits can learn and implement the steps to develop a meaningful strategic plan. So, over that 28 week period, they will actually facilitate the strategic planning process at their own organization with our help and guidance. Now, this group is not for everybody. It requires a real commitment of time, energy, and human capital to be effective. For those nonprofits who have the right volunteers, this group will be a godsend, both financially and creatively. I'll tell you more about it in the outro because I have to share with you, we've got a great conversation. So today, I welcome Mazarin Trays, author of Get the Job, Your Fundraising Career Empowerment Guide. And by the way, we're obviously going to post a link to this on our show notes and you're going to see it is a great looking cover on this book, but you're going to like even more what's between the covers than what's just on the front of the cover. Now, Mazarine wears many hats. In addition to writing The Career Guide and two other books, she is founder and CEO of Wild Women Fundraising, CEO of Wild Social Media, and owner of Mazarine Trey's Art. Now, Mazarin is passionate about coaching nonprofit leaders and fundraisers in their roles. But first, before she can coach them, they need to land the job. Mazarine and I are gonna discuss some key takeaways from her book, Get the Job. We'll also look at some case studies of people who advanced into nonprofit leadership positions. And of course, I am hoping that Mazarine will share about her own journey through her really interesting and multifaceted career. Mazarine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Dolph. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, again, I am so thrilled to have you on. Probably the second most common question I get from people is looking for career advice. So I am so happy to have you on. Let's talk about how someone can stand out from other applicants for that first-time nonprofit job. So either they just graduated from college and they're looking for a nonprofit job, or they want to make that transition from the for-profit sector.
1: That's an excellent question, Dolph. And the way that I would counsel most people to stand apart is to think about their story with the cause that they are applying for in terms of that particular mission area, if you can think of a personal story to put in the first paragraph of your cover letter, you are going to be way more successful than somebody who just says, "Here's the requirements, I can do them."
0: I love it when people give tips, and I know you're you're on the same page as me as this, or you're on the same page with me on this, I hope. Tell me a story about someone who did that really effectively.
1: Absolutely. Here's a story of somebody who was in my um, fundraising meetup group here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. And um, she joined my group, bought my book, Get the Job, Your Fundraising Career Empowerment Guide. And then I sat with her and I said, hey, you know, so there's something you might not have thought about in terms of cover letters. And she looked at it and she said, oh, my God, I never thought to do it this way before. I didn't know you could do it this way. And I said, absolutely, you can. And it got me an interview 3000 miles away. Um, when I was in Portland, and I got an interview with NPR in DC. And so the next week, she left my meetup group. And I'm like, I'm sorry, did I say something wrong at our meeting? And she was like, No, I just got a job in Colorado, and I'm moving goodbye. And I was like, Wow, that's great. You know, this works so well, that you got a job within one week. So it really worked for her.
0: So now I'm really curious, what story did you tell in that cover letter that got you the job at NPR? You can't you can't tease me like that and not tell me.
1: So what I did was, since I have no public media background at all, is I said, when I was reading my my copy of Adbusters this week, I saw a story from Bill Moyers about the freedom of the press and how uh, the future of media is nonprofit. And since NPR is a nonprofit, I immediately thought of NPR and thought about how I want to be part of the future of media. And so after being involved in publishing in a small way in New York City at The Economist, you know, when I first graduated from college, I uh, thought I would love to do more for NPR. So here are my qualifications, basically, and they loved it.
0: That's awesome. And by the way, I love The Economist. And I'll share with you what I love about that, that periodical. And they're they're a little they're much more conservative than I am. But I love the letters to the editor. They're so snarky.
1: obituaries a lot, actually. I like find out interesting people that way.
0: <laughs> I'm about obituaries no matter where they are. New York Times, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm like, wow, this person led such an amazing life.
1: It's inspiring. Honestly, there's so many things I could say about that. <laughs>
0: So I don't know why, but that also makes me think, uh, you know, when, when we read someone's obituary, sometimes we'll see what they did for a living or, you know, they were in the military. So we get a little bit of a resume, but we also get a real sense of who they are as a human being and a person, you know, so, you know, like the person was an avid skydiver, hopefully they didn't die that way, but you know, the person was an avid skydiver and, you know, left a spouse and, you know, three grown kids and two grandkids. How do people bring that with them into the, the job search process?
1: How are you a whole person? Yeah. Because because we live under, you know, white supremacy, we have a war on mothers in the society um, and also people that, you know, pe- people from the you know, hegemonic masculinity see as feminized. Right. So that means that if you have kids, sometimes you have to hide that you have kids. Um, if you're planning to have kids, sometimes you have to hide that. I, I've, I don't have kids and I haven't planned to have them, but I've had that question in a job interview, for example. So it's, it's, it's a game of what you reveal and what you conceal in the society at this moment. Well,
0: so, so I, I, hold on, I got to jump in there for a quick second. So you just said that in job interviews, you've been asked if you have kids or if you plan to have kids. And so I have to ask, not a lawyer, I know you're not either, neither of us provide legal advice. Is that legal? How did you respond to that question?
1: Well, because I was young and naive, I didn't know that it was illegal. So I said, well, I'm not planning on having kids. And the guy was like, oh, that's good.
0: Wow. Okay. So now how would the, I'm not going to say not so young. How would the not so naive Mazarine answer that question today? Help our listeners out.
1: Well, because I kind of have a big mouth, I would say, um, I'm not sure if you know this, but that question's actually illegal. Yeah, I <laughs> just say that. Cause I mean, like, I don't want to mess around with like, let's, let's move on to the next question. <laughs> I've also have a friend who's a woman of color who can, routinely gets asked how old she is in the interview. And it's so insulting.
0: And also patently illegal.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, it's not like if she's 25, 45 or 105, is she going to do the job any differently? Like they can tell she's there, she's excited, she's motivated, you know? So I tell her not to answer that question now.
0: Good for her. And so do you suggest to her that she say the same thing that she just say, hey, that's an illegal question? Or what do you suggest to her?
1: I ask her to say, you know, I don't really see how my age has any bearing on how well I will do this job. Would you like to explain that to me?
0: Oh, my gosh, that's an awesome answer. Oh, Mazarine, you rock. You just <laughs> rock. <laughs> has she shared with you how interviewers respond when she replies that way? Besides stuttering.
1: (laughs) That was like the first interview they haven't asked her. So next time, we'll see.
0: So you'll have to follow up with me and we'll post a little PS in the show notes. Because like, I really, really want to know besides just stuttering, how the interviewer responds to that. That's awesome. (laughs)
1: I'm I I feel like people should should own their biases. And if you have a person in front of you who is not from the dominant culture, you might be making certain assumptions about them depending on how they act and what their culture is. And it's just better to it's better to just try to keep it to the questions that have to do with the job as much as you can.
0: What are some of the other tough interview questions that you coach people on?
1: What is salary do you expect? That's a typical one. And I've presented AFP uh, national on that topic, on salary negotiation, um, I've also done like four career conferences online for fundraisers, specifically helping them answer that question. And I have a section in my book about how to answer that. There's multiple ways that you can deflect that question because ultimately the person who makes a number first is the one who loses in the negotiation.
0: Yes. So I'm not asking you to you know drop all the candy in the lobby, but give our listeners a freebie. Give them one or two ways they can deflect that question.
1: Absolutely, I will. So one of the ways you can deflect that question is, it's really hard for me to know what my salary requirements would be without knowing the full compensation package and ability um, for this position to grow. So get back to me that information and we'll go from there.
0: Admittedly, and and so who knows, you, you might tear me apart. I don't normally ask that question. But normally, the question I will ask is I will say to the person, the range is between x and y. Is that range workable for you? How do you feel about that question? Okay question, or am i am I stepping over a boundary there?
1: Um, you know what? I think it's good for the you to name the range, and so then they can say to you, what would I have to do in the next six months to justify you giving me a raise? Like what would I have to hit?
0: I've also had people say to me, "Well, you know, I need to make twenty thousand more than the top of the range, and hey, I'm I, you know, I'm really sorry, you're really fantastic, but we don't have an extra 20 grand at the top of the range.
1: Yeah. And you might say for fundraisers specifically, you know, we would love to see you prove yourself in this role. And if you hit this number, then we will be able to give you that in a year. And in fundraising, at least that's the ability that they will raise that. It's almost a certainty if you have the right person in front of you.
0: Right. So, yeah. And I agree with you in fundraising, but I think in a lot of other positions, it's really difficult to say, okay, well, you know, we've got this range, but we'll find a way to go over that range.
1: Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, I feel like salary transparency is important for us who seek equity in our organizations. And that's really the uh, underlying thread for all the things that I do is equity.
0: Nice. In terms of equity, what tips do you give people around around resumes?
1: So I just tell people not to put their date that they graduate from college on their resume because people will try to discriminate against you based on age I will tell them not to put that they have kids on their resume in case people try to discriminate against you as a mom or a dad or a parent. I tell people to try to, if they can, strip off things that would be indicating that they're a member of a group or another group. I mean, ultimately, we know that the whitened resume study showed that if you have a name like John White versus Minefer Mirkanum or whatever like that, you're going to get way more interviews just from your name. So it's really hard in nonprofits to overcome, and um, in, in, in organizations in general, to, to overcome implicit bias. And so it's really important, I think, to like try to like strip out all identifying factors out of a resume and just look at people's qualifications, almost like doing a blind audition for the resume. You know, blind auditions um, in orchestras in the '50s—that's how they opened up orchestras to women. They just had people like audition behind a screen.
0: Really. Very cool. I did not know that.
1: If you just do blind auditions for resumes, I think that would be a really good place to start. Um, but yeah, once you get in the, in the room, of course, you can see who you're talking to and then your biases are always there. Yeah. So, you
0: know? so for those people who maybe are in positions to be doing hiring, how does an organization or a person go about doing, you know, the blind screening on resumes?
1: I would try to get like a firm to strip out people's names for you. So you're just looking at their qualifications. I'd also have people you know, try to do a phone interview, again, where you're just not looking at their face, um, and then just really pick the top three candidates from that, and then hopefully have an in-person interview with them. Um, and and then, you know, I'd also like, and I'd like to ask, um, because at MFC International just came out with this on International Women's Day, 70% of the people that work in nonprofit leadership roles, like head of nonprofits are men, but 80% of the sector is women. So I'd ask people to think about what the top levels of your organization look like, and see about diversifying that um, in a, in a consistent, uh, systematic way, and say 50% of our board is going to be an X or Y or Z kind of person by the time, um, you know, 2021 rolls around, you know what I mean?
0: The other thing I think that we often see in the nonprofit sector is we see, people of color in direct service and middle management, and maybe, you know, it's 30 or 40%. But then you look at the executive management team, and it's pretty much, you know, an an all white management team.
1: Correct. That's what we see. And so I asked a person um, uh, last week, what she likes to look for when she tries organization, a person of color. And she's like, I see, is there anyone on the leadership team who looks like me? And if not, I think, am I really gonna be able to rise here because it looks like they don't value or see people as me, like me as leaders.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And and people are kind of interviewing their prospective employers as well and saying, is this, is this going to be a place I can grow and thrive?
1: Right. And so one of the people that I talked with, she said, I have had for my entire fundraising career women who were between 40 and 60 white women as my bosses. So what does that say about our sector, that we don't see women of color generally as development directors or CEOs or VPs, you know?
0: So when we look at equity and inclusion at, the, at that C-suite level, what is the board's responsibility to ensure there is more equity and there is more inclusion?
1: First, get diversity on the board, because if you do have those diverse voices in the room, then they're already going to be saying, well you know, this is what I think we should do to increase equity at the C-suite level. And their opinion matters more than my opinion does. Um, And they might have the internal networks that will help people get to that step. And it'll hopefully be a part of the interview process to be part of the C-suite level as well. Um, It's it's difficult um, for people to understand that diversity has to, the fish ruts from the head. You know, so equity has to start at the top.
0: I think also when we're looking at equity and inclusion, and New York is probably this on steroids, but there was a study, it came out maybe two years ago, that over the last 25 years, New York boards have gone from being relatively diverse to being relatively not diverse. And not just in terms of gender and ethnicity, but also in terms of occupation. And so over the last 25 years, essentially, Lawyers and finance people in New York have taken over boards. And so whereas, you know, those two occupations used to represent about 25, 30 percent of board participation it now represents like 70 percent of board participation. And now that's that's the view of the world that the board looks at things from. I think that trend is happening all over the country, but it's kind of on steroids in New York.
1: Yeah, it's a microcosm. I mean, we asked our fundraisers to help us find people that have the capacity to give. And because of income inequality and, you know, capitalism and white supremacy, we've seen a greater and greater inequity in our society. And so if that's the case, then they did their job. They found the people that are still making money and they put them on our boards. And they're like, these are the people that have the capacity to give. I'm going to lose my job if I don't find these people. Right. So like um, we the, our executive directors did this, too. But what Norway did is they required 50% of people on corporate boards to be women, right? And so they're a much less ethnically diverse country, but they said, otherwise, we're going to revoke your corporate charter. And then they got that. They got that by the deadline that they set. So I would suggest that people have those requirements and nonprofits just make a policy that like, this is what we're going to do.
0: I will say that's kind of cool um, that Norway's doing that. A few episodes ago, we had someone come on and talk about B Corps. So essentially, Norway kind of required at some level that all of their companies become somewhat like B Corps to really, you know, embrace diversity and what's right for the community.
1: I love that. Yeah, I really don't believe and who else didn't believe this was Lee Iacoa from like, you know, GM or whatever. He was like, shareholder value is bullshit. That's not why you're in business. You're in business to improve the community. But a lot of a lot of businesses have lost sight of that.
0: Well, and, and it's interesting because especially in the conversation we had um, around B Corps, I kind of feel like a lot of nonprofits have as well. You know, that, that I think a lot of nonprofits, even if they continue to have their nonprofit structure, would benefit from looking at the policies that B Corps have to have. You know, so focus on communities, focus on the people who work for you and the people you serve. And I will say, I think most nonprofits do a great job of focusing on the people they serve, but maybe they're not focusing on their staff and the communities around them, as well as the global community and the environment.
1: That leads me to one of my favorite points to make, which is staff love, not donor love. Hashtag no thank you. I mean, so like, if you don't treat the people in your organization right, what impetus do they have to treat your donors right? And how can we say we're making a better world when inside our organizations, we are not treating our employees like full human beings we're not giving them time off we're not giving them a living wage we're not basically allowing them to have enough health care um or uh allowing them to even have a pension for the future well in canada they're legislating that nonprofit people can get less precarious work and pensions now they are doing this with the ontario Nonprofit network but i have a friend who worked full-time in a domestic violence nonprofit here and because their board was mo- full of other um, domestic violence eds they said everybody here this organization can only make ten dollars an hour or at the most 15 and so now in next year in portland fifteen dollars an hour is going to be minimum wage so and then her health care was zoom care and she needed a neurologist appointment
0: i don't know what zoom care is and listeners outside of oregon might not so what what's zoom care
1: it's just urgent care it's like just walk in and pay three hundred dollars and get like a doctor to see you
0: yeah so really crappy health care okay got it
1: she had to pay neurology out of her own pocket and she couldn't afford it because she was making 10 nonprofit work. And like we see this over and over again in nonprofits, people sacrificing their workers for the greater good. When honestly, you are a total hypocrite if you think you're working for the greater good and the people inside your organization are suffering.
0: So I will share with you where I think this starts in the nonprofit sector. I think it starts with interns. If you do an internship in the for-profit sector, for the most part, you're gonna get paid for that internship. You might only make 10 or 15 or 20 bucks an hour, but you're gonna get paid for that internship. Whereas in the nonprofit sector, for the most part, when you do an internship, even when you do it for school credit, you don't get paid. What that then means is then people get out of school and their first job is making $15 an hour, as opposed to, well, that's what I made as an intern and now I need to make 20 or $25 an hour. And so it just feels to me like literally, you know, the first rung on the ladder, on the career ladder for folks in the nonprofit sector just starts so much lower because we expect some people to work for free and they're called interns.
1: Yeah, my first nonprofit job was an internship that was unpaid.
0: I mean, and I'm speaking from experience. Yeah, same here. I was a social work student and, you know, undergraduate social work students, even graduate social work students, you know, they they give free service, but they don't get paid for it. And there's this sense of, well, you know, you're getting educational credit for it. But if you are, if you're co-oping as an engineering student and you're co- or you're co-oping as a business student, guess what? IBM's paying you. That's right. That's right. But yeah, so so to me though, I also think like that sense of, okay, well, you know, in the nonprofit sector, people will work for less. I really think that mindset start We we train people in that mindset from college, we're like, you're going to work for free. And then you're going to be grateful when we give you 1250 an hour.
1: It's true. And part of the reason and there's this research done by the Ontario nonprofit network, they have a decent work for women movement. It's the feminized labor, the feminized nature of the sector. So like, if women are doing a job, it's automatically worth less than if a man is doing a job, which is why you see in professions like, law or in financial services, right? There's there's predominance of men, you're going to see people getting paid more and same for programming.
0: I could not agree with you more. I actually have said that about the region in which I live, because the nonprofit sector in the region in which I live, um, which is the southeastern United States, pays significantly less than cities of comparable sizes in other parts of the country. And I really think it's because Uh, people sort of look at that and say, well, you know, 40 years ago, that was the work of church women. So people are lucky we pay them for it.
1: And most people don't know that like 40 years ago, fundraising was primarily a male profession, and they got paid a lot more. And so I mean, I see the same job that I had over 10 years ago at a domestic violence shelter getting paid the exact same wage that I was paid then advertised now. And I'm like, wow, you wonder why you can't get good help these days.
0: And, and I was going to say, I, I could not agree with you more on that, like especially on things like, you know, th- things that are just highly competitive, like fundraising. So often I talk to organizations and they're either looking for a development director or an executive director, and they literally, they want someone who can do everything really well. I'll ask them, you know, and I'll say, oh, I know a lot of people, what's your pay range? And and. They'll say $65,000. And I just kind of look at it. And I'm like, I don't know anyone who would who would do that job well and would do it for $65,000. I just don't.
1: Right. And so people who say that they can't afford more than sixty five, dollars I say, great, pay them part-time, hire a dollar per hour, and they'll do an incredible job for you because they're going to feel like they're getting compensated fairly.
0: So give our listeners some salary negotiation tips. So they got the job offer, and now it's time for them to say, okay, I can't do that for sixty five. How do they do that?
1: You use the arms technique. So here's what happens. They say 65 and your botna, which is best alternative to negotiated agreement, you're really aiming for 75 or 80. So what you do is you agree. That's the A of the arms. You say, I totally get that. Then the R of the arms and you reframe. When you think about the 10 plus years of experience that I bring to this role, I'm easily worth the 15K difference or the 10K difference, right? So then um, you make the case, that's you making the case. And then the S part is shut up, silence, and let them consider what you just said. You may also want to put in, I raise this much to this much if you're a fundraiser or I, you have way more experience than they're asking for if you're if you're a program person or, you know, if you're an executive director, maybe you'll say both of those things, right? Because you are be raising money, too, if you're an executive director, right? And so I knew an executive director who was interviewing for a role. And what she said was, I need to see that the board has faith in me that I can raise this money. And then this guy said, finally, well, what would number would make you happy? And she wrote it down on the contract and she threw it back to him. And he's like, OK. And she's like, and just between you and me, they're going to get this money back because I'm going to give $1,000 a year to this organization as a major donor so that I can go out and ask for money as a major donor.
0: Yes. And, and it's interesting because whenever I've been an ED, I've always been a major donor. And I'm kind of on the same page where I'm like, you've got to pay your executives well enough that they can afford to be a major donor so that they're equals when they're talking to people who in the community who make a major commitment.
1: Right. And if you don't, then you're kind of a hypocrite.
0: Absolutely. So just real quick, though, to summarize for our listeners, arms. So it's agree with them, but reframe, make your case, and then shut up. And, you know, back when I was a baby fundraiser, I think that was probably the first thing that my development director boss, who was a Um, And and she was amazing, but she was a white woman between 40 and 60. But so uh, my very first boss said to me, she was like, after you ask for the money, shut up. Just count in your head. You won't get past 15 is what she would always say to me. But that's also true when we're asking for ourselves.
1: That's right. That's right. You can use this for major gifts as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, but like, you know, but when we're asking for ourselves in terms of negotiating our salary, you know, yeah, it might feel uncomfortable. So just start counting in your head. Just go one. To in your head. And you're not going to, I mean, I don't think everyone got to 10 before somebody responded. You're certainly never going to get to 15.
1: People really do want to avoid discomfort. It is quite an amusing thing to play with.
0: Yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. So we've talked about salary and we've talked about how to negotiate the salary. What else should people be thinking about negotiating before they accept the job?
1: Obviously vacation, numbers of days worked from home, Um, You know, if you have family responsibilities negotiating when you'll need to take time for that, for women, especially, you'll be expected more to take care of your family, you know, aging parents, relatives or, you know, children. So that's something that a compassionate nonprofit will appreciate and want to help you feel comfortable taking that time. Um, I'd also negotiate continuing education budget for you. Will they help you get your next degree? That's a good reason for you to stay. Will they also train you, give you further education throughout the year? Um, I would also negotiate um maybe a membership in an association that will help you. Or there's online membership programs now that have like I have one. Gail Perry has one. Kibi Lou miller has one those are useful. Can you negotiate what budget there'll be for the fundraising program? Um, because if they don't have a donor database, you're being set up for failure. So you definitely need to like make sure that that budget is there for you to be successful. And maybe even negotiate a part-time person for you to have for uh, various admin tasks. Um, there's a lot of things you can negotiate, healthcare stuff you can negotiate. Again, asking that key question, what would I have to do in the first six months to justify you giving me a raise so you can see the metrics that matter to your boss. And then you can already start them thinking about how can I give this person a raise like right in your first or second conversation with them.
0: The couple things that I've learned about from a negotiation, the first I learned from one of my mentors, I was engaged in a, in a, in a negotiation and I asked her for some advice. And it's some of the best advice I ever got around essentially negotiating your next job. And she said to me, Dolph, at this point, they have said that they want you. They have more to lose by you saying no than you have to lose by you saying no, because you have a job, you like the job you have. So you need to ask for everything you want, because you will never have more leverage than you do right now. And if you don't get it now, don't be upset that you don't get it later.
1: Yeah, this is when you ask for everything.
0: But I think especially in the nonprofit sector, where, again, we're trained from you know being free interns going forward, I'm going to come in and prove my worth, and then they're going to do this or that for me. You know, Negotiate that up front, not, not okay, well, I'm going to come back a year later and ask for something else. Because at that point, you don't have as much leverage.
1: Well, that's quite so. And um, there was an article in Mother Jones in 2011 called The Speed Up, More Work for No Pay. And there was a quote in there from an adjunct professor at a college named Heather who said, Never assume that what you're going to get paid is going to change at all. You're to be paid fairly on your terms, not theirs from day one, or you never will be.
0: And I actually wrote a blog post about this. But one of the things that I say that's that's a little bit different, but similar, negotiate for as much as you can possibly get before you accept the job. But once you've accepted it, act like you're paid a million dollars a year. I got what I wanted, I'm happy, and now, you know, because the other thing that happens to us as humans, you know, we negotiate for what we want, but six months later, we've got it, it does not feel like as much, you know, but to kind of be like, okay, this is exactly what I wanted, I got what I wanted, and I'm happy.
1: Yeah, that's what you're describing is called the hedonic treadmill, which is one of the things that makes somebody who has like, for example, a Golden Globe Award want to get an Oscar. Um, it's like, and if you raise a million dollars and your goal was a million, it makes your boss say, okay, great. We raise 2 million next year. And then, you know, hedonic treadmill, it's no longer enough for them. And we humans have this, have this cognitive bias around always thinking that what we have is not enough. And it's good to strive for things. But as you said, pretending that you have everything that you want right in this moment is such a beautiful thing to trick your brain into doing. You'll be happier. And ultimately you can get off the hedonic treadmill. And if you see your boss getting on that, you may want to name and claim, I see that you're kind of getting on the hedonic treadmill here, boss. And we're actually doing really well, and we're hitting our goals. And if you want me to have a greater goal, you really need to give me a much greater salary increase and a greater budget with much more people in the, you know, to double our our fundraising return.
0: The other thing that I kind of learned along the way in my career and you know now that I'm a consultant I don't really negotiate vacation time because you know I negotiate engagements and I figure out my vacation, you know, I plan it at the beginning of the year but I figure out my vacation on my own. One of the things that I learned really early on is to not give up vacation time. So, you know, so when I was negotiating for a new job, someone would say, "Oh, your first year you get whatever three weeks vacation." And I would say to them, "Well, I currently have 4 and I just I can't have less than that." And only once did did that blow my ability to get a job because most people, if they really want you, they'll give you that extra week of vacation. But but so consequently, by the time I was at my my last, you know, job, again, you know, non non-consulting job, by the time I was at my last job, I had like five and a half weeks vacation because I just refused to go back when I was negotiating. I would say, Well, I currently get four, so I need at least four. And then once I got in a couple years later, you know, maybe I'd find some way like I'd buy back an extra week or whatever. And that's how I got five. You know what I mean? You know, but then when I negotiated again, I said, well, I currently have five. I need at least five.
1: I love that. And that's something, too, that I would definitely encourage people to do is like think about in Europe, they have seven, six weeks of vacation. We are the barbarians that have three or none promised to us. We are the barbarians that only give women, you know, six weeks of maternity leave. We are the barbarians that don't pay people paternity leave. You know, what if you wanted to have a kid, Dolph? And what if you wanted to have time off to bond with that kid? You should have that time because that kid is going to love you. And not giving you that time is really inhumane.
0: I will also share with you, though, and and, and so this is my own selfish perspective, because we don't have kids. We don't want to have kids. I think regardless of whether or not you want to have kids, everybody should be able to find ways to take significant amounts of time off and pursue what they find passion in. Like everybody.
1: Yes, I agree. It should be anyone's prerogative, whether or not you have children. Absolutely. Take a sabbatical from your job for six months or a year and then be able to come back and be stronger than ever.
0: So so one of the best practices that I love to talk about, we actually had them on the podcast maybe a year or so ago, um, and that is um, funders for LGBT issues, sorry, funders for LGBTQ issues in New York. They have a written policy that every employee gets a paid, two months, no questions asked sabbatical every five years. Not just the CEO, not just the development director and the CEO, everybody from, you know, the person that started five years ago as an admin assistant and is maybe a coordinator now to the CEO. And there's something powerful about that. And, you know, two months is not a year. But, you know, as someone who has had really the luxury and the privilege of being able to take a couple months off at a time, there's nothing like having this long stretch of time before you and being able to do whatever you want in that time.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. I was talking with an executive director in New York yesterday, and she said, I met this guy at a party and he got paid by like the Episcopalian, oh, I don't know, some school to have a two year sabbatical to do whatever he wanted and basically do nothing. And he would check in with other people in his cohort or whatever. And she's like, God, I want to do that. And I'm like, and I think you should. You know, like, how can you make that happen? And, you know, maybe it was a seminary or something, but it wasn't like they even had to, like, study religion. It was just like, go do nothing for two years. And he's like, she asked him, how did that feel to you? And he's like, it changed my life. He's like, it was incredible. You know, so we could offer that to people. Yeah.
0: yeah, I, I intentionally, um, gosh, back in 2014, I intentionally took eight months off. So I gave 10 months notice of my job before I started my consulting practice, and I took eight months off. And of course, it was self-financed. Again, talking about privilege. When you have privilege, you can self-finance your own sabbatical. It also completely changed my life, and it actually made me realize. So I was in my 40s, um, and. So now one of my biggest regrets is that I did not take six to 12 months off in my 20s and in my 30s, and I will do it in my 50s. And I'll I'll be working until I'm 70, so I will do it in my 50s, and I will do it in my 60s. Because what I realized is that what I wanted to do in my 40s is very different from what I would have done in my 30s and very different from what I would have done in, in my, what I will be doing in my 50s. From my perspective, yeah, it means I'm going to end up working, you know, into my 70s. But I'm going to get a a six to 12 months of retirement in my 40s, in my 50s, and my 60s. And it will be a very different, unique experience that I'm going to treasure.
1: Oh, yeah. You're going to have so much renewal and creativity and relationships and and joy in your life that you wouldn't otherwise have had.
0: Absolutely. Well, Wild Woman Fundraiser Mazarin, I have to tell you, I'm looking at the clock and this conversation is so great that we are running out of time. I've got to have time for the off the map question. So my off the map question for you is I think I read somewhere that you do destiny card readings and I have never heard of a destiny card. So you're going to have to tell me what this is.
1: I'd love to. So this is actually something I incorporate in my career consulting. Um, And so destiny card readings, it allows you to combine. uh, What I like to do is I like to combine the strengths finder test, human design and destiny cards going to kind of make a personality composite for a person because I believe that every person is very unique and different. And so destiny cards are based on the day that you're born, and every card is a different day of the year. So when is your birthday, doll?
0: October four.
1: October four. So in that case, I believe that your destiny card is a C Yeah. So you're the five of diamonds. And Wow, you know
0: that on the top of your head.
1: I memorized it. I got certified in the destiny cards um, to do. um, But so uh, five of diamonds. uh, And so like, so each suit and each number of each card has a different meaning. Right. So, I mean, it comes from like it's ancient Egyptian system. That's like older, like as old as the tarot basically. And it, it allows you to kind of, in my opinion, help you understand who you are, what your biases are towards what you think of yourself and others and helps you understand other people and helps you get along with them better. So for example, my whole family is double diamonds, which means that they're very interested in being adults and making things happen in the world, um very interested in their appearance and money and values are keywords for them. But I was born in eight of hearts and the six of clubs, which means that I'm really interested in relationships, in in family, um, and also in like you know speaking the truth. Um, so hearts are about children, like childhood and family and 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 relationships, and clubs are about knowledge and words and writing and adolescence. Diamonds are about adulthood. Spades are about um like you know will and old age and health and lifestyle. So because of my cards, I was able to get a perspective on why am I so different from the rest of my family? And how can I accept them and love them exactly as they are? And and in that way, come to peace and acceptance with them. Do you know what I mean?
0: I do. Very cool.
1: It's helped me help other people to understand what to do at work and at home to get along with people and say, Oh, okay, this person doesn't care about money the way I do. They really care about this thing. And so now this is the language I need to use to talk with them and, and reach them. Do you know what I mean?
0: I do. So now when this is over, I'm going to have to Google the five of diamonds and see what I am.
1: I can tell you more about you if you want to.
0: We actually really are running out of time. I, I am looking at the clock. We are running out of time, but um, I am totally going to have to figure this one out. Thank you. Mazarine. and, and again, I, I say this in almost every episode, we're actually looking at each other because we're on Skype I don't smile this much in in every single episode that we record. And I have just so enjoyed, like, we've like, literally, just been grinning from ear to ear at each other this entire episode. So thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. Um, I can tell you right now that you have helped our listeners get a better shot at getting the job they're going to love, but... Also, just as importantly, you've also helped them figure out how to value themselves and negotiate in a way that shows they value themselves. Now, dear listeners, if you want to know more, if you want to join Mazarine's online group, or you want to get more information about how you can get the job and get the money that you're worth, then go to wildwomanfundraising.com. Now, you can also get her book, Get the Job, Your Fundraising Career Empowerment Guide, online. Believe it or not, there's still brick-and-mortar bookstores, and you could probably walk into one of those and get it as well, or ask them to order it for you. Hey, Mazarine, thank you again. What a real pleasure.
1: So my pleasure as well. Thank you, Dolph.
0: So if you missed Mazarine's contact information, or you want to see some of her art head on over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com because one of the things she and I did not really talk about, she's also an artist, so we're going to put some links on our show notes so you can learn more. And let me share with you, this is a person you want to know more about. Now, you'll find all of her links, the link to her book, the link to her consulting practice, the link to everything about her you will find at our show notes. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, Successful Nonprofits is offering a strategic planning facilitator cohort group. This 28-week program makes available the proven strategic planning process that I've developed through my consulting work. If you're interested, make sure you go over to Successful Nonprofits. I will share with you that at the time that this episode airs, I believe the price has gone up to $3,500 to participate. But if you are a podcast listener, and when you call to schedule that conversation to see whether or not you're a good fit for this, and you tell me you're a podcast listener, we will give you a $600 break. And what's more, if you tell me you're a podcast listener too, we'll still give you the $600 break. So check it out. Now that's our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.